Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. so much for joining Michigan Minds for the special series to discuss women in STEM. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Erica. Um, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, as well as an affiliate faculty of the Mechanical Engineering Department here at UM. Thank you. So can you briefly tell us about your research that examines gender and sexuality and inequalities? Absolutely. So um, my research is focused on cultural processes of inequality. So when we think broadly about what produces these really entrenched patterns of inequality in the United States, there's some researchers that focus on structural processes. So governmental issues, economic issues. My research is really about the beliefs and practices that we swim around in. And I think um, over the last year, we've seen how durable those beliefs can be and how impactful they can be. So as a researcher, I, I look at those cultural beliefs and practices and take them really seriously. And rather than focusing on those things that are overtly bias, overt forms of, of sexism or racism or heteronormativity, I think about those things that are that's kind of fly under the radar of our expectations for egalitarian treatment, things that um, sort of are, are in the water of the cultural things that we, that we do and believe in that seem fair, that seem meritocratic, but actually under their surface can be profoundly problematic for reproducing inequality. And so in the space of thinking about where those patterns live, I tend to look at places that try really hard to practice fairness and equality and science and engineering fields are a really good example of that. So what led you to focus on these topics? So um, I started off my higher education journey as an electrical engineering major. So um, I was really good at math and science, was super invested in um, designing things like assistive technologies. Um, my grandmother was blind, and so I really wanted to contribute to um, technologies and practices that helped um, a variety of people, not just those who were who were um, able-bodied. And so I began uh, as an electrical engineer and came to find that there were uh, a lot of assumptions and a lot of practices that concerned me. Um, part of that was some of the sexism and heteronormativity I experienced um, within, within STEM, within engineering in particular, but a lot of it was also the kind of approach that engineering seemed to take to its role in society. So in, in engineering education in particular, there's often this, this um, bracketing of cultural concerns or inequality concerns as sort of tangential or relevant to what engineers are supposed to focus on, the kind of real work of engineers. And um, that, that really troubled me. And so I sought out additional training. I, I um, got a degree both in engineering and in sociology as an undergraduate and um, sought opportunities to understand these processes at a deeper level. And I recognized that I needed the tools and the theoretical training 
of sociology of a PhD to be able to understand these processes at, at a deeper level, but also maintain a foot in the engineering world and the STEM world to be able to be in dialogue, to have the kind of credibility um, and knowledge of that space. So you study inequality in STEM and as you know, this episode of Michigan Minds is a part of a mini series where we're talking about women in STEM. And so tying all of this together, I'm curious, why are inequities in STEM a crucial topic to study? And what is the approach that you take when you're doing this type of research? There are a couple of reasons why this is important. So first and foremost is just a basic equity question. We want everyone to have the opportunity who is invested and interested in pursuing a career in STEM to be able to do so and not encounter barriers to that process. But in addition to that, lacking diversity is actually bad for scientific knowledge. There's all this research that has come out over the last decade that shows that when you have diverse teams, you come up with better ideas. And we are facing many crises from climate crises to sociopolitical crises to um, really difficult questions about surveillance and, and use of technology by, by um, those in positions of power. We want the best and the brightest in those decision-making arenas, regardless of their own socio-demographics. So it's good for society, it's good for science to have um, as many diverse uh, perspectives as possible. And the way that I approach the issue of, of gender inequality, as well as other um, demographic axes of difference, is to ask hard questions about how excellence and scientific knowledge and um, competence are actually defined. So the way that we think about what is real science and engineering versus what is not, what gets bracketed out. Because if we think about what excellence means in STEM, like everything else, our definition of excellence is a cultural construct. We as a society, as a, as a STEM community, came together to decide what counts as excellence and what doesn't? What is seemed to be sort of on the margins or bracketed from it? A good example of that kind of bracketing are diversity and inclusion uh, efforts. And I've, I've talked to many faculty and many students who say, I'm really invested in, in diversity and inclusion issues, but if I speak out in STEM context, some people don't take me as seriously because that's not seen as of a real topic of conversation in STEM. So my work utilizes both surveys, some quantitative-based designs, as well as more qualitative-based work, so um, in-depth interviews, to try and understand uh, these processes and tri to triangulate um, some of the kinds of cultural processes that are in play that prevent um, full inclusion. Um, a good example of that is, uh, is a concept I developed called depoliticization. And this is the belief that STEM not only can be stripped of cultural and social and political concerns, but that it should be, that the best way to do STEM is to ignore those things entirely. But that's not actually the reality of the situation, right? STEM is always inherently cultural and political and social because 
the people who do them are humans. And, you know, I like to say that the electrons are not whispering to us, what about them we should study, right? We, uh, as, a, as a social community, come together to decide what's relevant, what's not, what is appropriate, and what is tangential. And so uh, in my work, I focus a lot on those kinds of cultural beliefs that are embedded within the professional cultures of STEM that can limit our ability to um, expand who becomes STEM professionals. Fascinating. Thank you for diving into that. I want to hone in on the public engagement perspective here. Why is it important for people to understand the information that you find through your work and who needs to hear about these findings from your studies? So there are beliefs floating around that the reason that we don't have women and LGBTQ persons and persons of color represented equally to their proportion in the population in STEM is because um, either they don't want to or they're not skilled in it or it's there's some kind of biological or cognitive differentiation that would lead them not to follow that path. And that is not only sort of fundamentally incorrect in terms of what research suggests to us, but it's morally problematic, right? When we are putting the blame on disadvantaged members for not being present in the room of, of spaces of STEM, that's deeply problematic. And it actually takes away blame from universities and institutions and workplaces for doing the hard work of promoting diversity and inclusion within their midst and sort of tackling these issues. So what my work does is fundamentally uh, um, uh, uh, pushes back on those narratives that this is the fault of, of marginalized and minoritized populations, but rather this is something that's embedded within the culture and practice of STEM disciplines themselves. Um, and this information is important not only for those who are decision makers within the context of STEM, so um, that can be, you know, deans and, and provosts and university presidents to CEOs of tech companies, and also um, people who want to get an education in STEM, right? To understand, especially minoritized and marginalized populations to say, this is a structural problem. This is not, you know, this is, this is an issue that is um, not just you um, that you might be encountering. But beyond that, the kind of average STEM worker really need to understand these processes so that they don't perpetuate the sort of essentialist biases that 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 people are underrepresented because they, they don't belong there or they don't want to be there. I want to dive into some of your recent work. So you conducted a study investigating the experiences of professionals in STEM fields to identify disadvantages and inequities. Can you share more about this work and the outcomes? My most recent project um, utilizes um, uh, survey data of over 25,000 STEM professionals in the United States to look at something that we really uh, haven't been able to examine before systematically, and that's the experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, or LGBTQ persons within the context of STEM. 
So we have a lot of really strong, robust documentation um, about inequalities faced by women and people of color within the context of STEM, but we don't really, we didn't really yet have a good sense of how that might operate for LGBTQ persons. And so this study was really the, the meant to be a kind of flag in the ground to say there, there are these disadvantages. And so we were interested not only in uh, the kinds of questions that tend to be asked in these spaces. So whether LGBTQ persons are more likely to be um, socially marginalized by their colleagues, but in addition to that, whether they experience professional consequences. And so what we found is not only were there these experiences of, of feeling socially marginalized, but LGBTQ persons were more likely to get the sense that their, their colleagues didn't respect the work that they did. They had fewer professional opportunities and they were even more likely to want to leave their STEM job and leave STEM entirely compared to LGBTQ persons who had the same education, same experience, same training level, worked in the same types of jobs, that kind of stuff. And what was so troubling was not only did we find these patterns, but we found that these experiences of, of marginalization and devaluation affected these LGBTQ persons personally. So um, they were more likely to have uh, depressive symptoms, more likely to be stressed, to face um, uh, minor health problems. And so these are, these are, it's a mechanism through which biases kind of get under the skin and affect them in deeply personal ways that they can't leave at the workplace when they go home at night. It sort of follows them home and affects them in really um, uh, deeply troubling ways. And what do you think is something that's really important for everyone to take away with them from this work, from those outcomes? Sure. Well, first and foremost, that LGBTQ inequality is a real problem within STEM. It's something that we can't ignore. Um, there's been a lot of conversations in the LGBTQ and STEM community that we need to pay attention to this, but um, there was a lot of hesitancy on behalf of um, uh, leaders and administrators to take this seriously because there weren't the data to show it. So this is really a, a big step forward in that process. But in addition to recognizing this as a, as a, as a space of disadvantage, what's really important for LGBTQ inequality, but also for inequality across different axes of disadvantage in STEM is the importance of talking about these issues. So with depoliticization is the rejection that these are relevant topics of conversation at all. Like you shouldn't be talking about LGBTQ inequality in your lab. That doesn't belong there or doesn't belong in faculty meetings and things and um, validating, legitimizing these as, as important valid topics of conversation um, is, is, is really vital. And that is in addition to making sure that we have policies and practices in, in place that are that are inclusive of LGBTQ persons, access to sort of healthcare that's LGBTQ inclusive, and also making sure that, that students and um, professionals have access to um, things like networking opportunities or opportunities to get together and, and seek mentoring from other LGBTQ persons. That, that all together can be a really, I think, important path forward. Thank you for adding that. I feel like it's really important sometimes to really emphasize what what people should really keep in mind as they're exploring and learning more and more. 
So as a woman in science yourself, and as a professional who studies inequities in STEM, what can be done to recruit and retain more women and girls to pursue work in STEM-related fields? Sure. Um, I mean, my own experience in elect electrical engineering as an undergrad, there were there were lots of times when I thought whether this was the right the right thing to, to do to continue. There are lots of moments of of sexism. Um, there was even a time when I was um, doing public outreach um, in uh, K through 12 classrooms. And I was in this third grade classroom in rural Montana giving a presentation about uh, a NASA Mars mission. And one of the um, one of the, the, the girls in the class came up to me afterward and said, I didn't know girls could be engineers. And that was such a sort of stark moment in my life to say, I want to fix this. I want to um, make sure there's not another generation of girls who don't even think that girls can be engineers, let alone wonder if they could be one themselves. And so in my own experience, I've certainly seen and I take really seriously those experiences of kind of day-to-day -day sexism or day-to-day -day, um, uh, homophobia or heteronormativity, they're there and they're present. But at this, and so, you know, part of it is sort of recognizing that it's not just about their own experiences. It's not about them. It's about sort of a, a, a sexist and homophobic and, and sort of racist space that they may inhabit. But beyond that, asking not, do I belong here? But what can I do to change STEM in a way that takes advantage of my best ideas? So in my own experience, I <laughs> really decided that my best way forward was to take my educational path in my own hands and, 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 and go forward with these two really weird combination of majors because it was the thing that made, this, made sense to me. I felt like that was my contribution. And in order for me to have an impact, I wanted, I needed to be fearless in pursuing that. And so for, for, um, for women, for other people who are marginalized or minoritized within STEM, recognizing your power of not only being able to do it, because all the, all the research shows that, that people are equally qualified and able to do STEM sort of mentally and competence wise. So, so, so trusting in yourself to be able to do it, but also trusting in the kind of creativity and vision that you might have for pushing STEM beyond the boundaries of what you perceive it to be. That can be a little bit difficult for people who are just starting out on the journey. So maybe you're an undergraduate, maybe you're a graduate student or a postdoc thinking about how do I navigate these situations? And it's certain, there certainly are gatekeeping mechanisms that in order to continue on in STEM, you have to get through. And being able to sort of challenge challenge the status quo in STEM can sometimes require doing a second shift. So um, in, my, in my experience, I did my sort of, sort of street sociology work, and then I did stuff that was more in the space of, of STEM education and STEM inequality that was a little bit more interdisciplinary until I was able to get my feet on the ground in a, in a, in a faculty position. And I think um, there's opportunities uh, for, for people to be able to do both at the same time until they get into a position where they have the kind of expertise and knowledge um, to stand on. But in addition to that, 
for every step that you move through the hierarchy in STEM, there's always an opportunity to look back down the, the steps and say, who can I help? Who can I mentor? Who can I advise? Who can I encourage? Um, my amazing partner calls this lifting as you climb. And that's exactly what should be done to say, I'm at this position and people helped me along the way. I'm maybe an undergrad in STEM. How can I mentor high school students or middle school students to be able to encourage them to participate uh, and continue on in STEM? I love it. Thank you so much. All right, I'm curious, what do you find to be one of the most rewarding aspects of your work? I mean, it's such a tremendous privilege to, to do this work, right? To kind of be in a position where um, I can be a faculty member and, and research the things that I, I feel most compelled to research. So, you know, overall, I feel really privileged to do that. I think the moments where I feel um, most rewarded in my work are twofold. One is um, when I am speaking to an audience and I'm presenting them with um, concepts like depoliticization or the scheme of scientific excellence or something like that. And it crystallizes for them something that they've felt for a long time but haven't been able to talk about. So the ability to give language to people's experiences of difficulty within STEM and, and them articulating that to be, to me, feels um, amazingly rewarding and it feels like a contribution that, you know, who cares if, if, if people are, you know, citing this paper as long as it's something that they, that they can use in their day-to-day -day life to be able to help them and, and help them help their students or their colleagues um, uh, be most effective and thrive within STEM. And I think the other times that are most rewarding are just small moments or, or emails or, or messages from people, particularly young people in LGBTQ persons in STEM who expressed to me that no one has ever talked about their experiences before, that this is the first time that they feel seen, that their experiences have been validated in this way. And um, that, that means the world to be able to have had that kind of impact uh, on someone and um, know that that even for a little bit, even for even in a small context that the work has made their lives easier and given them resources to be able to thrive within STEM and as well as change STEM for the better. Do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you would like to share? I think one of the most important pieces in the context of inequality in STEM generally is the answer is not about fixing minoritized and marginalized populations, right? There's often this instinct that we just need to get women into, into, um, into programs or get them better mentors or something like that. We're not gonna get really anywhere with that approach. If we want to make serious progress within the context of STEM, we have to change STEM itself. And that means changing what we think of as the ideal scientist or the ideal engineer and what it means to be excellent in STEM, to be, to, to be more inclusive of a much wider array of considerations, including considerations of inclusion and diversity within that context. Um, but the more that we, the more that we 
aim our attention to these kinds of patchwork or band-aid types of approaches, um, we really limit our ability to make change and we just put the burden on uh, disadvantaged persons in the long run. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share all of this very valuable information and your personal experiences. And thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you, Erica. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.